Well, good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Piper's dad, and it's my privilege to be known by that. Uh, Rebecca and I officially received our parent license when we took our nine-day-year-old to the emergency room, which uh, was not fun, uh, but she is back home now and she is well. So thank you to all of you who prayed and who uh, sought to serve us during this time. Thank you, guys. Let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 4. We're continuing our series in the new normal. Well, December 7th was not only my daughter's birthday, but it was also the day that the Supreme Court determined to hear two important cases related to gay marriage. And the decision of the court on these two cases, which is going to be rendered in June of the coming year, it has the possible outcome of legalizing same-sex marriage across the board. Now, you know, along the lines that Roe v. Wade had for abortion in 1973. Now, that decision would obviously have a normalizing effect at the state level as far as the law is concerned, but our culture has already been steadily heading in the direction of this new normal. By the way, if you Google that phrase, your first hit's probably not going to be our sermon series here at Lakeview, uh, but advertisements for a TV show described as, quote, two gay dads and a baby mama create an entirely new kind of family comedy. For our culture, this is increasingly the new normal. But for believers, normal needs to be defined by God's word. And it's been the design of this series to look at his word, in particular the book of Acts, to discover what does God intend to be normal for his church? But what we need to recognize is that until Christ returns, there will be a clash between the norms and values of this world and what is considered precious and true for Christ's people. There is an antithesis between the message of the gospel and the milieu of our culture, and that's what we find in our text here, here in Acts 4, verse 1 through 22, we now have the third of four scenes related to the healing of this lame man. And this is the first time in the book of Acts that we see the gospel opposed. In fact, not only is it presented and rejected, but there's actually an attempt to stamp it out. And we'll see that this too is normal. But in the midst of this opposition, God has guaranteed success for the mission of his church. Let's read in verse 1 of Acts 4. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with 
Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power, or by what name, did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further... Among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. The man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Let's seek the Lord. Father, What we see in reading this is that we need a miracle of the magnitude of a lame man walking. Or if we learn anything from this text, we learn that it's not enough for truth to be clearly presented. Lord, you must open up the heart to receive. You must open eyes to see beauty and glory and to respond with faith in a life-changing way. So God, would you do that in us this morning? Lord, we, we thank you for what we've sung, that though we were blinded by our sin and had no ears to hear your voice, your spirit came and you did exactly that in us. But would you once again this morning open our hearts to respond to this truth? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We could summarize the main point of the passage like this. Jesus, though rejected, is alive 
and precious and therefore worthy of our exclusive devotion and bold proclamation. Jesus, though rejected, verse 1 through 4, is alive, verse 5 through 10, and precious, verse 11, and therefore worthy of our exclusive devotion, verse 12, and bold proclamation, verse 13 through 22. Or put another way, what we have here is the normal, powerful, exclusive, testified gospel. And we'll take each of those in turn. Now, if you're wondering what this has to do with the new normal, hopefully that will become clear as we move through the passage. So first, under the heading normal, it is normal for the gospel to be cherished by some and opposed by others. Look again, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, remember Jason's sermon last week about Peter's explanation of the miracle to the people. The the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening, but many of those who had heard the word believed. The number of the men came to about five So this chapter opens up with the religious elite of the day, the priests and the temple officials and the Sadducees becoming greatly annoyed because of the preaching of the apostles. Now remember what has happened. A man whom we later find out is over 40 years old and has been lame from birth, he has been healed. And healed demonstrably and irrefutably. He went running and leaping and praising God. And he's probably still bouncing up and down by the time that we get to chapter 4. So this isn't like one of those reported miracles where someone with a mild headache takes some children's Tylenol and then claims to be healed. No, unless this man kept up this lame beggar act for over 40 years just to benefit Peter and his pals, this is clearly the real deal. Now, what is the appropriate response from the leaders of God's people when a miracle like this occurs? You would think it would be joy, celebration. But look at verse 2. They are greatly annoyed. They think of this as a nuisance. Now, it's not the healing in particular that bothers them. Look at verse 2 again. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So the offense here is the proclamation of the resurrection. And it might help to look back at who's making the fuss. Verse 1, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. The, The Sadducees were the political pragmatists of the first century. They wanted to maintain the status quo with Rome, and so they, they resisted movements that appeared to threaten peace. And theologically, they, they focused on the here and now, and they didn't believe in an afterlife, let alone a future bodily resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees were sad, you see, because they didn't believe 
and the resurrection. It's dorky, I know, but it does help you remember it. And the, the priestly service tended to be comprised of Sadducees. So all three of the groups here would have seen Peter's preaching of the resurrection to be distasteful. But even the Pharisees who believed in the resurrection would have come away with crooked noses. Notice specifically what Luke reports. He says they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. That's interesting. He doesn't just say they were proclaiming the resurrection. Or even that they were proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. No, he says that they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. In other words, they were proclaiming that the end times resurrection from the dead that the Pharisees believed in had essentially already been accomplished in the person of Jesus Christ. When God raised Jesus from the dead, that God had taken what was to happen at the end of history and inserted it in the middle of history in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. It is a radical claim. And it's a claim that receives opposition. Verse 3. And they arrested them. Literally, they laid their hands on them. Doesn't sound comfortable. And put them in custody until the next day. So Peter and John, and presumably the healed man too, end up in prison for the night. And we shouldn't read past this without realizing the significance of what's happening here. This is the first time ever that someone is arrested for preaching the Christian gospel. But it is the first of millions. In 1658, John Bunyan Author of the Pilgrim's Progress was arrested for preaching the gospel. In fact, George Whitfield said of the Pilgrim's Progress that it smells of the prison. Bunyan had a young daughter named Mary who was blind, and he said that she would come to visit him, and, and when she would leave, he said it was like the tearing of his flesh from his bones. The thing is, Bunyan could have been released at any moment if he only agreed to stop preaching. Instead, he remained in jail for 12 years. Fast forward to 1942 with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote The Cost of Discipleship. A few months before Bonhoeffer would spend Christmas alone in a prison cell and then eventually be tried and killed by the Third Reich, he wrote a letter to his fellow pastors who were either ministering in secrecy or forced into Nazi military service. He wrote to them, The joy of God has gone through the poverty of the manger and the agony of the cross. That is why it is invincible. 
And that's what we find in our passage. Persecuted believers who are boldly declaring an opposed yet invincible gospel. Notice the success of Christ's mission in the midst of resistance. Verse 4, but many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. You see, when the preacher is in chains... The gospel is not. Or as Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.9, I'm suffering for the gospel, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. The word of God is unleashed. And here it is moving forward with full force, no matter who tries to stop it. Jesus had said to them, you will receive power. And you will be my witnesses. And that hasn't failed because some have rejected their witness. And it didn't fail later when this witness cost some of these same disciples their lives. I came across an interesting statistic this week that the number of Christians worldwide who were persecuted in 2012 is estimated to be about 200 million You know, at at times, the church has seen the symbol of the burning bush as an accurate representation of the work of the gospel in an antagonistic world. Like the bush, the church is burning hot, yet not consumed. Yes, the gospel will be opposed. That is normal. We should not expect Less in this world. We should not be surprised when we encounter it personally. But it will also be cherished. And in this text, the number of those who have repented of their sin and turned to Christ in faith has come to over 5,000. 5,000 people who love the Savior and who turned the world upside down. And if we are to live faithfully in the age of the clash between the system of the world and the truth of God, we need to be people who know the gospel well and who cherish it with our lives. But Christ has given us all the resources that we need. And that brings us to our second point. Jesus is personally and powerfully at work in his church By the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. So the religious leaders ask by what name or power this man is healed. In other words, they, they want to know whose authority was appealed to in order for this man to be healed. And here again we have some wonderful 
irony because a, a miracle has clearly taken place and yet instead of rejoicing like the once layman did, they ask who gave them the right? Who gave you permission to heal this man? It's amazing hard-heartedness on the part of those who are supposed to lead God's people. Yeah, I've heard it compared to the time when a sixth grader named Christine Rhodes encountered another girl on the school bus having a violent asthma attack. And Christine herself had asthma, so while the bus driver dialed 911, Christine offered the girl her own inhaler to her parents' great appreciation. But the problem is sharing prescription medications violated the school board's zero-tolerance drug policy. So at the end of the day, Christine went home with drug trafficking on her school record for three years and the inability to participate in the band and other extracurricular activities. And here a man is healed and the high priestly family wants to make sure the paperwork was filed correctly. So Peter responds to their question. But before we look at his answer, we should note that Peter's spirit-filled response in and of itself is a demonstration of the work and faithfulness of Jesus. The book of Acts is Luke 2.0. This is the second account that Luke has written to Theophilus of all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so he wants Theophilus and the rest of us to recognize something about the proven faithfulness of Jesus here. Jesus had said in Luke chapter 21, verse 12 through 15, But before all this, they will lay their hands on you. It's the same phrase from Acts 4. And persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. Exactly what we see here. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you, Christ will personally give it, a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. So, Even as Peter opens up his mouth, this is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is personally and powerfully involved in the life of his church. And he does so here by filling Peter with the Holy Spirit. In fact, Peter's answer focuses on the activity of Jesus. Verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified... Whom God raised from the dead, by Him, this man is standing before you. Well, feel this. It is the Lord Jesus Himself who has done this. He's not simply delegated the work of ministry to His apostles. No, He is on the scene. He is in charge. And through them, He is accomplishing His purpose to renew His People. That's what he does for his church. That's what he's doing in this church. In Acts 2, Peter had said that it is the risen and exalted Jesus who gives the Holy Spirit. 
And now in Acts 4, he says it is the risen and exalted Jesus who heals and restores by that spirit. By what name do you do this, Peter? By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. By that name. By the name of the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. By the name of the only mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. By the name of the one who holds the keys to death and Hades and is risen with healing in his wings. By that name, this man stands before you well. By what power or authority do you do this? Paul's version of an answer sounds like this in Ephesians 1, by the power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and he gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all by this name. This man stands before you well. And so do we. Are there not many of us here, as it were, standing before us well because of the name of Jesus Healed from illness, restored from brokenness, forgiven of guilt, released from the power of sin. We have marriages that seem to be without hope and then all of a sudden God softens hearts and renews covenant commitments. We have diagnoses of doctors that have been reversed and cancer that has disappeared from the body. We have people who have been freed from the clutches of addiction and lifted from the darkness of depression. By the way, these aren't generic examples. There are names and faces attached to these, and I hope we hear some of them tonight. Jesus has come to make us well. And that is a fat word to be written in big block Letters. It's too big, in fact, that this life can't contain it. The word that Luke uses for healed in verse 10 is the word that the New Testament typically uses for saved. It's the same word that Peter uses in verse 12 when he says that there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Now this man has clearly experienced a physical healing and it's Normal for that verb to refer to this, but when Luke uses this term, when he's talking about healing, he seems to always be pointing in the direction of the identity of Jesus as the Savior. And that's clearly the implication that Peter makes here. Jesus has healed this man, and so there is salvation in no one else. It's pointing to more than just properly functioning legs. Jesus has made us well. What does that mean? It means so much. 
It means that he took upon himself the penalty and the guilt of our sins. It means that he has accomplished for us reconciliation to God and adoption as sons. It means that God raised us up with him and has seated us in heavenly places. It means that this same Jesus, as the angels say in Acts chapter 1, will come again in glory and he will restore the created order after the pattern of his own resurrection and everything sad will become untrue and new finally will be normal. doesn't all come at once, but it will be enjoyed for eternity. The resurrection from the dead, the making of all things new, has already begun in the person of Jesus. And this cursed earth will not be able to resist it when that new life finally swallows up the power of death and sin in victory. The healing of this lame man is one frame, one scene in the grand production that Jesus is directing. And he is right now, right now, by the Holy Spirit, powerfully active in his church to bring about the renewal of his people. Just a moment ago, I was celebrating those of us whom Jesus has made well. But that might raise a question in our minds. Does that mean that Miss Linda Rockefeller is an exception to this list? That she isn't to be found in this text with the lame man who went running and leaping because she no longer lives on this earth? No. Because being well is bigger than this life can contain. Because Jesus the Savior has redeemed her from her sins. Released her from the burdens of this fallen world. And on the last day will be delighted to give her a perfect glorified body. Just like the risen Jesus bore when he stepped out of the grave on Easter morning. This is a precious gospel. A hymn by Isaac Watts sings, Jesus, thy blessings are not few, nor is thy gospel weak. The gospel is powerful. It is bursting forth with blessing. And it's worth treasuring and defending. That's what Peter does in the next verse. Verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This brings us to our third point. Jesus is the only Savior available to mankind and is worthy of exclusive devotion. Peter quotes from Psalm 118, verse 22 to them, and he he turns it against them. They are the builders. They are the ones who are supposed to lead God's people in the building of his kingdom, yet they have rejected the very foundation that the architect intended for everything to be built upon. 
And Peter says, by rejecting the cornerstone, they have rejected salvation itself. Because there is salvation in no one else. There is no other option. No plan B. Jesus is all there is. And yet here they are refusing to receive him. To their own destruction. So here we are reminded that the gospel is exclusive. It has a sharp edge to it. Of course, Peter's statement today wouldn't be considered tolerant. It's the very kind of intolerance that apparently isn't to be tolerated. I've heard Douglas Wilson say about the tolerance police that they have two fundamental tenets. One, we have an absolute commitment to free speech. And two, shut up. (laughs) But the New Testament is always talking like this. Just a few samples. 1 John 5, 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And of course, John 14.6, Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, it isn't just that Jesus is the only way, but that there are many ways to Jesus in other religions. You know, some people believe that, that you you need to be saved by the work of Jesus, but you don't necessarily need to actually come to believe in Jesus. But no, Peter says there is salvation in no other name. And he says in chapter 2, Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Calling upon the name of Jesus. It means you need to know this name. And you need to believe that it has the power to save. So much so that you cry out to it. This is conscious, active faith in Christ. And the consistent teaching of the scripture is that apart from it, there is no hope. So here again, we have a clash between the Word of God and the expectations of our culture. But two points might help to put this into perspective. The first is that exclusivity is about beauty. You know, this isn't all that the Apostle Peter had to say about the cornerstone. He, in his letter, 1 Peter, he quotes from the same psalm with a few other Old Testament scriptures, and he says in 1 Peter 2, verse 6, For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So you are either offended by this stone and you you stumble over it in the process. Or you come to see it as chosen and precious. 
And therefore you believe in him and are not put to shame. It's all about whether or not you see Jesus as precious. When we say that Jesus is worthy of our exclusive devotion, we're not not trying to go out of our way to hurt other people's feelings. We're just stating a fact. He's more beautiful than anyone or anything else. And if I said that about my wife, she's the most beautiful woman I know and that she alone has my love. People wouldn't accuse me of belonging to I don't know, the He-Man Woman Haters Club because I've passed over the rest. No, it is appropriate for me to give her my singular affection. And those who balk about Jesus being the only Savior simply haven't seen His beauty. Like the leaders here, they are sadly blind to it. Second, exclusivity is about necessity. Peter says in verse 12, There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We must be saved. The the word here is a small Greek word that means it is necessary. We need to be saved. We are in a desperate condition and Christ is the only answer. If this building were burning down and all the access points were blocked by the fire except for one, and and I said, here's the way to safety. You you need to go this way. You, You need to go this way. I'm not being intolerant. Just being realistic. I think it's obvious I'm being helpful. The problem is, this world doesn't, believe the building's burning down. They don't believe it's on fire. If the building's not on fire, then by all means, explore around. See what's behind door number one or two or three. You see, the conversation of religious plurality takes place in the context of a people who don't think there is anything wrong with them. But if there isn't anything wrong, then redemption is meaningless. We might as well shut down the conversation. But make no mistake. We must be saved. We are under the wrath of God. We are held captive by our sin. In fact, we ourselves set the building on fire and locked the doors. But Christ has come to rescue us. Isn't it wonderful then that the gospel is exclusive. Yes, thank you. By the way, you might think that you're safe when it comes to this point because you're a Christian. But this point about exclusivity isn't just, isn't just reminding us that there's no redemption available, available in Buddha or Muhammad or Lord Krishna. No. All false saviors are to be rejected. It doesn't matter if it's money or success or marriage or comfort or food or drugs or sex or a career. If you are seeking redemption from your problems or significance for your life and any of these, then this text is calling for you to repent 
and to come again to Jesus, who alone saves. Abandon these counterfeits. Church, we have salvation in no one else. So let's cease to search for it elsewhere. There is none. Finally, the risen and precious Jesus deserves bold proclamation. Verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. They recognized the sign, but they never asked the question, what, what does the sign point to? What does it signify? But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So besides the evidence of the healed man, which that is what it is. It's a sign of healing. It is pointing to the truth of the gospel. But there are, there are three other things that they, they notice about Peter and John that gives evidence to their witness. They saw their boldness. Boldness in the book of Acts is a direct result of the filling of the Holy Spirit. Verse 31 of this chapter reads, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. In the Gospels, we see that Peter is thick-skinned and he talks a big game, but he's not bold when it counts. But seeing the risen Jesus and receiving the outpoured Spirit have made all the difference as his sermon on the day of Pentecost makes clear. We should note this. It is normal for Christians to have courage. Not in their own strength or personality, but by the Holy Spirit. Christians are people who say things like, we must obey God rather than men. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.12, since we have such a hope, We are very bold. They also saw that they were uneducated and common men. This doesn't mean that they were illiterate or unintelligent, but that they hadn't received formal theological training. To use our favorite word, they were normal. They were like you and me. 
Peter and John were apostles, but remember, they were fishermen from Galilee. Peter, the hot-headed sailor, and John, the young son of thunder. And it is these normal men whom God used to bear witness to the work he had done in Jesus. And that's the third thing that they saw. They saw that they had been with Jesus. It's a beautiful statement. They saw they had been with Jesus. Now this means that they had spent time with the historical Jesus during his earthly life, but it also means that they, they bore the mark of his presence and character. They were distinguished by him. Don't you want this to be said of you? I want this to be said of me. You can tell I've been with Jesus. One of my favorite preachers to listen to besides the staff here is Sinclair Ferguson. And you might have read one of his books we have in our bookstore. But if you, if you haven't heard him speak, not only does Ferguson present a beautiful Christ-centered truth, but he has the most intriguing Scottish accent. I mean, I could listen to him read the menu at Denny's. You just listen for a few lines and you're captivated by his accent. And in the same way, I want others to be captivated by the accent of Christ. I want to sound like Him. I want them to want to hear more. Not because I'm interesting, but because they hear the sound of something foreign coming from my lips. Something from outside of this sinful and hopeless world. This witness... It's about boldness and character, but it's also about speaking. The gospel calls for articulation, the use of words, communication of truth. So they say in verse 20, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. In the original, it's a double negative. We are not able not to speak of what we have seen and heard. They're saying that it is impossible for them to be silent. They are compelled to proclaim this good news. So here we have normal men who have been with Jesus and who can't keep their mouth shut because of it. You ever had a door or a cabinet that just wouldn't be shut? Maybe it bulged a little bit too much or the hinges just didn't quite work properly. Every time you try to close it, it just springs open. Well, it's normal for the believer's witness to be like that. We cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. I hope that'll be the case for us tonight. That the line of those wanting to testify about the work of the Lord is too long to manage. And that that would be the case not only before believers, but to an onlooking world that so desperately needs this normal, powerful, exclusive, testified gospel. Daryl Bach writes, These first century spirit-filled men, please note that phrase for next week, They knew their calling and would not be deterred. 
They would serve and preach God's way through Jesus, the only one through whom salvation comes. They show that suffering is not to be feared, nor is it necessarily an indication of failure. In fact, it may well come with the territory of sharing the need for Jesus in a world that seeks self-sufficiency. But we must remember that this bold witness comes at a cost. We cannot forget the clash between the gospel and a culture that is set against it. Here in Acts 4, that comes in the form of warnings and threats. But elsewhere in this book, the consequences are more deadly. One way or the other, the world is not kind to this message. came across an interesting article by a pastor named Adam Griffin titled, Raising Kids the World Will Hate. And this will be on the screen. He says, There are many scriptures that describe the adversarial relationship that God's followers will have with those who are not believers. Reading these, I realize that if God answers my prayer for my son to be a follower of Christ, people will hate him. People will absolutely, unquestionably be repulsed by my son. If God graciously saves my Oscar, you can insert your own child there, people will call him a bigot and a homophobe. Some will ridicule him as a male chauvinist as they scorn his sexist beliefs. He'll be despised as closed-minded for saying that Jesus Christ is not only God, but the only God. He will probably meet a girl who insults his manhood or considers him old-fashioned for waiting until marriage to have sex. His peers will think him a prude. Bullies will call him a coward. His integrity will draw insults like goody two-shoes. I don't even know what that means. Teachers will think that my son ignores scientific facts about our origins, prompting his classmates to mark him an idiot. People will tell him he's he's been led astray by his parents down an ancient path of misguided morality masked as a relationship with God. Financial advisors will think he's irresponsibly generous. When he takes a stand, it will be those who will not tolerate his intolerance. He will be judged as judgmental. He will have enemies, and I'll be asking him to love them. And even for that, he'll look foolish. If you're like me and hope for your kids to be fully devoted followers of Christ, then we need to be raising up a generation who is ready to be distinctly different from their peers. In a lot of ways, that's the opposite of my natural inclination in how to raise my son. Raising kids who are ready to be hated means raising kids who unashamedly love God even in the face of loathing and alienation. Regardless if the insults of the world are naive or legitimate, I pray our children will be ready to stand firm in the midst of a world that hates them. You know, December 7th, being both my daughter's birthday and the day the Supreme Court made this decision, puts things in perspective for me. 
Interestingly, it's also the anniversary of Pearl Harbor, which reminds us that we are at war. There are principalities and powers in this world that are set against us to oppose Christ and his kingdom. We need courage. But if we learn anything from this text, we know that Jesus is worth it and that he is present to fight for his people. This is the first time in the book of Acts that we see someone persecuted. But the first time in the book of Acts when someone is martyred for their faith, Stephen, he, he looks up into heaven and he sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The captain of the army leads his people into the battle, having already secured their victory. John Calvin says, even though their conspiracy seems so strong, we can be certain that Christ's honor remains safe and sound. The result of this is that we can fearlessly maintain Christ's kingdom which God invincibly defends. So may it be a new normal for us that we love the Savior with our lives, defend the gospel, maybe, maybe to our death, May we rely on the resources that the Lord Jesus Christ powerfully works among us by the Holy Spirit. And as the new year dawns, may we be committed to be bold in our witness to God's wonderful life-giving truth. Let's pray. You guys can go ahead and stand as well. Father, we find ourselves in both positions in this passage. Having been those who opposed you, having been your enemies, and yet having experienced the miracle of new life. Father, if there are any of us here who have yet to experience that, maybe we've been challenged by the exclusivity of Jesus. Maybe we just don't believe in the supernatural. We just don't believe God does stuff like that's in this passage. Or maybe we know all of this is true, but I've just found it to be boring. We've seen Jesus as common, not beautiful or even necessary. 
God, if there is anyone here like that, would you save them right now? (laughs) Would you right now make the lame man walk and then run and leap and praise you? May every single one of us live lives that are worthy of what you've done for us. And may we be so ready to speak this word of hope as we look to you in faith, seeking to be faithful to you all the days of our life. In Jesus' name.